This is Rob Barons here. Welcome to Radio Ombudsman. My special guest today is Michael or Mick King, who is, as you know, the Local Government and Social Care Ombudsman. Well, Mick, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, I know Mick well. We serve ex officio as non-executives on each other's boards, and I've learnt a lot from my involvement in Mick's organisation. Mick, there's been a long tradition in this country of appointing ombudsmen from from the list of the great and the good, and also appointing people from outside the work of ombudsmen, so they begin not being familiar with the key issues. Uh, this is beginning to change on both fronts, and you are a great example of this change in both respects. So, tell us a bit about your background, where you were born and brought up. Well, as you say, I don't think I was ever on the list of the, the great or the good. Um, I was born in Liverpool, I grew up in North Liverpool, and um, I came from, um, I suppose, what would be called a hard-working family these days. I, w- I went to a comprehensive school and um, I had very normal backgrounds. My um, early work, I was an apprentice weights and measures inspector for Newcastle City Council. So I, I, um, I suppose, come from what would be classed as a very normal background. And you had a long career in public service before you joined the, uh, the local government office. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I was involved in um, public protection services and local governments up in the northeast of England. That ranged across a whole um, wide variety of different public protection issues, from dealing with loan sharks and car clockers through to looking up um, safety of toys and investigating the deaths of avoidable deaths of children from um, unsafe toys and other products. So. I worked for about 15 years in public protection of one sort or another, and I suppose if there's one thing that's characterised my work in life, it's been around trying to seek justice for people. Yeah. I'm sorry, what is a car clock? Somebody who turns back the mileage on a car oh. in order to make it look more attractive, yes. so somebody's going to buy it. So, you're not part of the great and the good. Don't think so, no. Um, <laughs> But you worked for the local government ombudsman for a long time before you became the ombudsman. Uh, I think you first joined the LGO in uh, 2004. Indeed. So what was it like in those early days? Um, I think the organisations changed a huge amount. I joined as deputy ombudsman. In those days, we had three ombudsmen rather than one. Um, And I think it's fair to say the organisation hadn't changed a great deal since it was set up in 1974. Um, in the time I've been there, we've gone through a huge change. I mean, three of the big pieces of work I've been involved in were trying to increase public access to the Ombudsman scheme. So I was involved um, in setting up our first public advice service back in 2006 um, and enabling people to complain by phone. Unbelievably, you only had to, you could only complain by sending in a, a form up to that point. Um, I was involved in expanding our jurisdiction from just looking at public bodies to looking at private bodies who are delivering public services. So we expanded to look at the whole of private sector social care in 2010, bringing in 26,000 care providers in the independent sector. And more recently, we've been doing a lot of work around how we can be more transparent, more accountable. So I led a piece of work for us to publish every single one of our complaint decisions. So we've I've currently got about 36,000 decisions on our website, whether that's whether we uphold the decision or not. 
to try and make the service a bit more transparent. So it, in the last decade, really, the service has changed beyond all recognition. I want to ask you uh, a bit about transparency and what, what that means in terms of uh, public trust um, a bit later on. But it hasn't always been plain sailing with uh, the local government ombudsman. And I think it's right to say there was a crisis of public confidence a few years ago. What was that about? I think uh, partly the governance that we had in the organisation was um, complex and old-fashioned. I mean, basically you had three ombudsmen, three deputy ombudsmen, um, all of whom really had to agree um, to change something before it would ever happen. So you didn't have the kind of modern governance that you would expect in a, in a public body. We changed all of that. I think also we were too inward-looking. We, we weren't sufficiently listening to the people we served, um, nor were we doing enough to share the lessons from our complaints with an external audience. So, I mean, I think the big things that have changed is, one, we've got um, a single ombudsman now, me, um, and a chief executive and a, and a board that work in a in a more recognisable way, like a modern organisation. But I think partly it's a cultural change that we're much more focused on um, providing a good service to the public and to the bodies who are in our jurisdiction so that they can learn from complaints. Okay, so uh, I think it's right that the three ombudsmen were in three different cities or three different parts of the country. Uh, absolutely, it was sort of organised like Saxon fiefdoms, where um, you had an ombudsman of the north, one of the south and one of the midlands. And now it's all under your... Uh, responsibility. It is, but I'm very much um, against the idea of you know having one leader who claims to know it all. I certainly don't. So it's very much about having a very democratic organisation, very flat management structure, and a huge amount of delegation to staff on the front line. I mean, we live or die by how good the staff we employ are. Fortunately, we've got some fantastic investigators, and they've got my full confidence. I give them full delegation to be able to make decisions on my behalf. I mean, people listening will raise their eyebrows at the idea of a democratic organisation. What, what does that mean? Well, I think that um, we try to be a learning organisation where we're reflective and humble about what we do, and we try and make sure that we listen to the voice of both the people who use our service, but also that we listen to each other within the organisation. Um, I, I don't think it's healthy for one person you've got a lot of power invested in you as ombudsman um, you've got to share that in order to make the organisation work properly and I think that if you hold all that power to yourself and if you try and be too controlling then you distort the service and you know you, you can't possibly be the fount of all knowledge you've got, you've got to share um, the responsibility and you've got to share the authority with, um, with your staff and work as a team What about the relationship with complainants? Is there a particular local government ombudsman and social care ombudsman uh, style to this? There is. I mean, I think um, one of the lessons we learned when we, we had some problems seven or eight years ago was that I think we'd stopped listening to our complainants enough. And we, one of the things we set up at the time was a user panel where we invite former complainants. Every year we get a different group of former complainants to come meet with us and tell us about their experience of using our service. That can be a very frank and robust discussion. Um, and I think the thing I take away from every single group we've met with is that we try to run a nice, neat, objective process in the Ombudsman scheme. And sometimes we forget how much of a journey that people have come on to reach us. They Often people have spent months, if not years, 
fighting um, to try and get their problem resolved. Um, what we've got to do is try and be compassionate and empathetic to understand that people come with baggage. They don't come um, ready to involve themselves in a, in a simple, clean process. So how do your case handlers get the skills to deal with those kinds of issues? Well, I think it's something we're still working on. I think it's one of the greatest challenges for an ombudsman scheme that you need to have two apparently quite different skills at the same time. On one hand, you need to be very objective, very cold and analytical. And at the same time, you need to be warm and empathetic without losing your independence. And I think trying to have those two things at the same time, lots of our staff do embody that and they do achieve that but I think that's the that's the real challenge behind um, an ombudsman scheme I think there's a lot of focus often on on process issues but actually I think it's a cultural issue that how can you be both analytical and empathetic in one person at the same time I think that's the existential challenge we have so it's an existential challenge but do you uh, believe that uh, an ombudsman is a profession or an embryonic and if you don't, do you think it should be? I, I think it absolutely should be um, a profession. I think when I joined the organisation, um, there were still remnants of its past as very much, um, I suppose, what you might call sort of gentleman amateurs. Um, and, and, and some, you know, the vast majority of staff who worked for us at that time were modern professional staff. But there was still a, a whiff of a different culture, which I think is where some ombudsman schemes came from in the past um, I absolutely think it, this is a professional set of skills that people need um, the challenge is that there aren't off the shelf qualifications, there aren't off the shelf packages through, by which you can recruit people but seeing this as a professional service is absolutely the way forward and, and that's where the bodies like the Ombudsman Association and the Public Service Ombudsman Group come in really absolutely, I mean I think the you know, ombudsman schemes operate a unique operating in a unique space in the administrative justice landscape, and I think the more that we can support each other to develop, uh, the better. I mean, and not just within the UK. I mean, there's some very strong links between ombudsmen in here in the UK, but I think there's incredible models in the rest of the world. You know, South Africa and in and in Europe, where ombudsman schemes are frankly doing um, a service which. We, we pale in comparison to them. So I think there's a huge amount we can learn and we should be humble enough to do that, learn from schemes across the world. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, let me just go back to something you said about um, taking on uh, private social care. Uh, I mean, there's a challenge for you in that uh, there's still a split between you and the housing market, isn't there? There is. What, what kind of... Uh, impact does that have? Well, interestingly, I suppose people would think that your scheme and mine, in terms of social care and health, would be the biggest overlap in public sector ombudsmanry. Um, but it's interesting, when you look at the statistics in our contact centre, we get three times as many misdirected calls for the housing ombudsman as we do in relation to health complaints, which shows just a level of public confusion there is around housing services. Um, it is a significant problem that I don't think people do know 
where to turn in relation to social housing and the way in which the housing ombudsman ourselves operate is quite distinct so that that is a significant issue i know the government's going to bring forward a consultation on redressing the housing market as a whole so maybe there's an opportunity there to look at that we as you may know we invite um twitter users to submit questions and we've had a bevy of questions uh to you one one of them uh addresses the issue we're just talking about and someone on twitter says the problem facing the public is there's no single complaint system uh you find yourself spending hours trying to divide uh phso and local government ombudsman complaints when there's no real divide uh, until a single complaint system is put in place uh, you're wasting your time and effort do you agree with that um, well, we might want to talk separately about some of the things we're trying to do short of creating a single ombudsman, but just to address that issue head on. Um, I think there's a nexus between adult social care, health, housing, benefits, where I completely agree with the, the person who's posed the question that um, to try and look at those things through the two jurisdictions that PHSO have, the two jurisdictions that LGO have, and the jurisdiction that the housing ombudsman has is not a sensible way forward and you wouldn't start from here if you were going to design a English public sector ombudsman scheme today. There's a model we can follow though in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland where our colleagues there have a joined up ombudsman scheme which looks not only at those issues but looks at a wide range of other public services and public goods as well. So I think that the kind of model that exists elsewhere in the UK, I think English citizens should be entitled to the same type of um, redress systems that you get say in Northern Ireland which I think at the moment sets the gold standard within the UK so I, I, I wholly agree I think though that in the meantime we shouldn't just be sitting on our hands waiting for legislation and um, we are and should continue to work together to try and make sure we offer as joined up a service as we possibly can. Okay I want to move on to that but before I do let me just go back to your point about gentlemen amateurs. Um, are you uh, in agreement with those who say that uh, ombudsman is not a gender-neutral term and should be replaced? I, I've heard, well, I, the Swedish ombudsman told me it was a gender-neutral term, so I'm happy to take her view on it in that I'm sure she knows more about um, Scandinavian languages than I do. But I, I think the big problem with um, the term is it's already not well understood. I think if we start to try and um, create a subset of that term, I think it's going to be even more confusing for the public. I mean, perhaps the solution here is to move away altogether. I mean, in, in Spanish-speaking countries, the office is called the Defender of the People, yeah. um, and in South Africa, it's the Public Protector. So maybe, um, maybe the term Ombudsman is a problem in itself, and maybe we should just look at something which is speaks in plain English um, about what it is that we do. I agree with you to the extent that I find uh, public protector in the South African mode, that's quite attractive really for, for uh, a term and uh, something that we need to debate. Okay, so um, in terms of what you have to offer your colleagues in the ombudsman sector about good practice, uh, you've mentioned some things already. You've mentioned your transparency. Uh, policy, which I know uh, is very impressive. Uh, what does that bring in terms of public benefit? 
Is it is it the case that you publish all the decisions that uh, you resolve uh, in in a year? Absolutely. Um, what, virtually all the decisions. The only ones we don't publish are ones where we think it might compromise the anonymity of the complainants. So a small number um, we don't publish for that reason. But the vast majority of the um, 12,000 decisions we make each year we'll, we'll publish. And that will include large numbers of decisions where we have decided we can't investigate for one reason or another. And there was a big debate in our organisation about whether that was a good thing to publish those or not, because um, potentially they could be seen as quite a negative outcome. One of the things we're very keen to do, though, is create a much better and much more full picture for the public and for the um, bodies in our jurisdiction of exactly what the range of decisions we make is. So actually, one of the ways of helping people to understand what what they're in for if they come to the Ombudsman is that they can actually look at the decisions in advance. And you can search on our website by the name of your local authority and by the type of complaint that you're looking at. So actually, you could probably look in advance at you know, 10 or 12 decisions about pretty much the same thing and get an idea of, one, will we be able to look at it? And two, what sort of range of outcomes um, might we get? I think that's quite important because people sometimes assume that um, they're going to get a sort of PPI claim type of treatment at the Ombudsman and absolutely not what we're here for. So uh, partly one of the big driving forces of publishing everything is one is to be accountable and transparent, but also it's to try and give people a true sense of what it is we do. So you would say that transparency helps you to educate your users? It does, um, and I think it also um, helps to make sure that the quality of what we're doing is right. We did about a three-year project um, when we were going to publish our complaints to make sure that we improved the quality and consistency of the final product of the decision statements. Um, there's an old saying, isn't it, that uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant? And I think that was partly what motivated us, that um, actually by putting these decisions in the public domain, they're not checked by anybody. This is the actual decision that goes um, from the investigator to the complainant. There's no secondary checking. There's no editing. This is the letter which is on our website, which is the same letter which would have been received by the complainant. So every one of our investigators knows whenever they make a decision, that will be in the public domain. And I think that's a an important discipline. So it, it also additionally helps you to demystify the process and makes it clear that ombudsmen are not just champions of the complaint. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as I say, um, of those 12,000 decisions, um, maybe 6,000 of those will be us saying that either for jurisdictional reasons or discretionary reasons, we might not be able to investigate that complaint. So um, it shows both sides. It's also a resource for elected members and local authorities who can use that to hold their own authority to account and see how their authority is performing. So it's part of democratic scrutiny. It's also a resource for officers and, and local authorities. We have a strong network of link officers who deal with complaints coming into local authorities. And we know from conversations with them that they use this um, encyclopedia of cases when they're trying to sort out a case, they'll look at what sort of decisions we've made in the past, and that will often mean that they don't need to refer the case to us. They'll sort it out themselves on the same sort of basis. Yes. So, um, have you? Did you have any kickback from local authorities uh, in terms of that fear about their? reputation as a result of this process? Well, interestingly, we didn't. Um, we expected that we might, but I think that local authorities 
are subject to so much legislation requiring them to be open and transparent about what they do that I think part of their culture is to um, accept that this is this is the way that they have to do business. So um, we didn't get really any pushback at all from local authorities. Um, we also expected that the media may selectively pick on um, cases that we published and, and distort a picture of what we did. But again, that hasn't happened. So a lot of the risks that we were trying to mitigate when we did, went down this path actually haven't manifested themselves. And you know, it's been a wholly positive experience. Do you, do you believe that ombudsmen should be um, highlighting good practice as well as poor practice? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that an ombudsman's got two roles fundamentally. The first is to um, provide justice for the individual. The second, though, is to do something with the learning from complaints to help drive service improvements. And part of that has to be um, being reflective about um, those authorities who perhaps have performed well in response to in, in response to particular recommendations you've made. We do an annual letter to every single local authority in the country every year, reporting back to them our experience of their complaint handling. Um, that letter used to be either neutral or negative, so it, it would um, those authorities who uh, weren't causing us any difficulties, they've got a neutral letter. The, the ones who we, we had particularly concerns about, we would say those, again, these are published letters, they're not behind closed doors. For the first time last year, though, I decided that we should also say some positive things where we could. Um, so authorities who invested in complaints training and authorities who have responded positively to recommendations we've made, we've um, said that in the letter and, and publicly commended them for that. Now, clearly, that's um, a challenging thing to do because, one, complaints aren't a great lens for seeing good practice by their very nature. But but also, um, I think people wouldn't expect us to say something positive. I think they expect us to be just critical. So um, it is a break with the way in which we've worked in the past. But I think it's important to be even-handed. Okay, so let's just get a bit personal for a minute. What, what uh, would you say is the most difficult thing you've had to do? Um, I, I genuinely enjoy all of the casework because I, I, I think it's one, it's so worthwhile and two, it's absolutely fascinating. So I, I don't think, no matter how difficult the case, I don't think I, I find that uncomfortable. I, I think the difficult thing as ombudsman though is that you, if you're doing the right thing, you will upset lots of people lots of the time. So I think being able to hold your nerve and keep on doing the right thing in the face of what is inevitably a um, fairly full-on constant criticism both from the bodies in your jurisdiction and the people who complain to you I think that's the most challenging thing and that you've just you've got to be fairly resilient and you've got to be fairly focused on what is the right thing to do um, in the face of um, lots of forces which are trying to push you along a different path. Um, how, do you, how do you cope with that, Chris? Um, I suppose um, I've worked in public sector roles which involved criminal enforcement or making quasi-judicial decisions for 30 years, so I've kind of got used to it. Um, but I think also the um, having a strong sense of, of, of what you believe to be right it, um, and what you think the right, um, what the role is all about is important. But I think also um, 
working with other colleagues in the sector who are have, or occupy the same role um, and getting support from from other people in the ombudsman sector I think is really important so that you uh, you don't go mad on your own. That's, that's another reason why the network of ombudsmen and the Ombudsman Association, the International Ombudsman Association is so important in terms of making sure we've got somebody to talk to who understands. Absolutely, yeah. And I, and I think that... Um, you know, it can be a lonely job at times. I think it is important that you can sometimes test your thinking with somebody else in, in who's working in a different context just to just to make sure you're still on the right track. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move on to ombudsman reform. Um, ombudsman reform uh, has been on the table for a very long time. The prospects of a single public services ombudsman ebbs and flows like tide, some people may say it's like hunting the snark, which <laughs> disappears suddenly. Um, do you think the principle of a single joined up public service ombudsman is sound and deliverable? I do. Um, as I said before, I, mean, I think the overlaps between different aspects of health, housing, social care make that um, a very sensible thing to do. And interestingly, I mean, in, in the sectors that we respectively look at, you have sustainability and transformation plans, you have combined authorities, which are actually joining up those services on the ground. And, and as you pointed out earlier on, you have housing associations who are also social care providers. So the reality on the ground that the public experience is not split into the silos which the ombudsman are so i think in principle it's got to be the right thing and i don't think at any cost though do you think that would you uh, give some time to those people who say it's okay in northern ireland or or scotland or wales but these are jurisdictions with very small populations in comparison to england and uh, uh, in big european countries uh joined up ombudsmen don't exist for that reason um, I think the fact that they don't exist in some parts of Europe is probably a little bit like the um, English situation. It's a product of history and, and of development. So I wouldn't think it's um, necessarily for thought-out rational reasons. It's, you know, the things have evolved in the way they have. Um, there's certainly lots of other um, countries around the world who do have a, a single ombudsman scheme. I, I think the question of scale is an interesting one. But the reality is... My scheme already operates at the English scale, looking at the whole of local government and at the, the whole of social care. Your scheme operates at the national scale, looking at the whole of health. So we're already demonstrating that it's possible to operate at that at the scale of looking at England as a whole. Um, so I don't see why it wouldn't be possible to do that for other services. Um, so I, I don't think that's a barrier. I, I think more of a barrier really is making sure that the proposal for any single ombudsman actually delivers something new. I think if it was purely about an administrative merger of different public bodies, then I, I think that's one a missed opportunity and, and two really incredibly dull way of of going about change. I think any change is going to be driven from the public perspective, not from perspective of moving around different um, public bodies and the boundaries around them. I think if, if that's what we were into, then I, th I don't think that's going to deliver a great deal of change. So in terms of powers then, what would you want to see in a bill which isn't in the current draft bill? Well, obviously, I, I welcome the, the current draft in that, you know, as you say, um, the, the tide comes in and out on um, creating a single public service ombudsman. 
And, you know, that, I think that established a new high watermark, but the tide does appear to be receding again. Um, I think that gives us an opportunity to revisit the, the draft bill. And I think there are things which could make it stronger. Partly for me, I think it's about scope. I think the, the scope in the draft bill is very much the existing jurisdictions of, of the two bodies involved. Um, I think that misses the point. I think what we should be looking for is some sort of principle of universality where public services and public goods, um, irrespective of what they are, you've got a right to complain to an ombudsman and get an independent investigation when things have gone wrong and that there's some sort of overarching scrutiny. So an area like such as schools complaints, we can look at everything up to the door of the school. We can look at school exclusions, um, school transport, but we can't look inside the school. We did a pilot jurisdiction for that, um, which was hugely successful, um, yet there's no proper mechanism for independent scrutiny of complaints there now. So I think defining the scope of a new scheme um, to include things like education and housing would be important. I think getting the governance rights important. Um, you absolutely have to protect the independence of the ombudsman, but you also need to have modern accountability. Um, I think the governance is a very tricky issue. I don't claim to know the answer to it, but I think that needs looking at again. And I think... Um, there needs to be more emphasis as well on the role of the Ombudsman, not just as a dispute resolution service, but as a body that is part of the warp and weft of public accountability and democratic scrutiny that is holding bodies to account in the public domain and is feeding back lessons to improve public services. And I think I'd like to see that strengthened in any future bill. But also, so um, you would, powers. you want to see uh, adjudication lost in the creation of um, uh, at this new institution? Would you want to see own initiative powers? Well, I used to be a sceptic. Sorry, when we talk about own initiative yeah. powers, what we mean is that uh, the ombudsman can decide whether or not to investigate uh, rather than relying on an individual complaint. I used to be somewhat sceptical about the need for it. and We've got a power at the moment in our legislation which allows us, allows us to broaden an investigation um, where we think other people have been affected. And we use that quite... Um, but good effects where we, we see one person um, in a local authority has been affected by a bad policy. We might broaden that out, solve the same problem for 500 people and then do a national report which changes that policy nationally. So I, I was sceptical for those reasons, but um, having talked to colleagues who have this power um, around the world, I'm increasingly convinced that I think it should be part of the, the Ombudsman's toolbox. I mean, a good example for me is... In our social care jurisdiction, we know that it's very, very difficult if you are um, an elderly person receiving care in a care home or, or in your own home, you don't have family to speak up for you. It's very difficult for you to make a complaint. It takes a huge amount of courage. Um, and we've seen examples of people being victimised as a result of raising a complaint. I think if we had own initiative powers, somebody could come to us and effectively make an anonymous complaint. They could come complain to us about uh, what was going on in that care setting and we could then rather than having to name them we could do an own initiative investigation to look into that um, where they perhaps would be very very vulnerable if we if we were to have to name that person so increasingly I think that it is part of the toolbox of most ombudsmen around the world and I think it probably should be here too. Okay thank you for that I mean uh, a final question about this is who knows when we're going to get the legislative time for this? In the meantime, are there a set of things that you and I should be doing to bring about convergence? Or is that a, 
chimerical view? I, I think we should, yeah. I mean, the most important thing we're doing together already, but you know, it's very much in embryonic form at the moment, is we have a joint working team where we've both given delegations to the same group of staff. So somebody might, uh, you know, typical situation of somebody who's gone into hospital um, in crisis and then is discharged into social social care. In that one life incident, they might pass through six or seven different ombudsman jurisdictions, which is insane situation through our joint working team we can look at those bodies or one investigator and one complaint can look at six or seven different public and private bodies who've been involved in that person's care i think that's a wonderful model and i i think we haven't got it working in quite the way we want yet but i think if we invest in that and grow that i think that's a model for the future in terms of what we can achieve without legislation but I think that our organisations already have a huge amount in common. So I very much hope that we can continue to build and grow together and, and, and um, increasingly work in very similar ways so that actually the gap between us is smaller and smaller as the years go by. OK, thank you. Two more questions. Uh, one from Twitter. Um, quite an assertive question. Do you use gagging orders on FOI requests uh, to hide your alleged failings um no i'm not even sure what a gagging order on an foi request is so <laughs> um no i mean we deal with um foi and, and and data protection requests in a very open way i mean our view is that um somebody's case file is their file so if somebody asks to see their case file unless that information is confidential we'll give them everything in, in the file um when somebody asks for uh, freedom of information request about the organization as a whole um a, a typical one that we used to get now and again was how many people in our organization used to work in local governments um totally legitimate request to make sure that we're not um every that every single person in our organization isn't fresh out of the local council and um, we will give that information if we hold it so our touchstone really with the foi dpa and, and anything else is to try and be as transparent as we possibly can whilst at the same time protecting people's confidential data. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then finally, um, you don't want administrative merger, which I agree with, but what do you think an ideal ombudsman service looks like? What are its main characteristics? I think the first characteristic of an ideal ombudsman always has to be independence. Um, and without that, everything else is, is lost. It has to be independent, which means it can do robust, impartial investigations, give fair redress for individuals, and hold bodies to account publicly. Um, and part of that is it being willing to speak truth unto power um, and, and to expose some uncomfortable truths from time to time. So, I mean, that, that's got to be at the heart of it. To achieve that, I think it's got to be enshrined in statutes. It's got to be protected by Parliament. Um, but also... It has to have adequate powers and resources to be able to do its job. And I think that the, there are sometimes less obvious ways in which independence of ombudsman can be eroded. Um, my own scheme has been cut by over 40% in the, in the last 10 years. Um, that makes it incredibly difficult to do the job. And I know we're not doing things that I would like us to do. So I think um, independence has got to be lived as well as being written on the statute book. It's got to be backed with resources and powers to be able to do the job um i think as well a, a, the northern ireland ombudsman used a, a great expression the other day um 
to distinguish the type of ombudsman scheme we both are from consumer dispute resolution. She called it a public interest ombudsman, and I think that's a very good way of capturing it because I think that an ombudsman scheme like ours has to do more than just simply resolve individual disputes in a transactional way. If all we do is that, then we're not good value for money and we're not doing our whole job. We've got to also find some way of um, systematically mining our data to identify bodies who are failing and identify themes which we can feed back into the public debate so that that helps to improve public services. So I think that having that dual role is really, really important if you're a public interest ombudsman. Um, and I think you've got to be part of the warp and weft of democratic scrutiny and public accountability, whether that's for traditional public services or for public goods which are delivered by other means. So I don't think we should limit ourselves purely to looking at public services delivered in the public sector. Um, I think the role is a wider one than that these days. Okay. Well, Mick, uh, so much there. can continue for hours, and we will do uh, when the broadcast finishes, but... Thank you for your time. Thank you for an eloquent, frank exchange, and we're very grateful. Can I just remind our listeners that uh, my next guest will be Sarah Barclay, who is the founder of the Medical Mediation Foundation and uh, one of the leading lights in uh, Europe on uh, developing uh, mediation in, in the health service. So if you have questions for Sarah, please look at our PHSO Twitter account and submit your questions and we'll be happy to put them to her. In the meantime, have a good day and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comments. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe for future editions.